from the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 31, beginning with verse 23. I'd like you to follow the reading, please. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words. The Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten their sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth shall be set on edge. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the fountains of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because all they have done declares the Lord. He who have ears to hear, let him hear this word of God. We are looking forward to the service next Sunday evening, not only for ourselves, but for the other Christian brethren that will be here with us. Let me encourage you to consider prayerfully the subject of the offering next Sunday evening, which is Bethany Christian Services. There is abroad a a great and tragic circumstance in which children conceived in the mother's womb who 
have such great potential for the service of God whose lives are being taken away before they are ever brought into the world. Bethany Christian Services provides a Christian alternative. Not just talking in the negative, but acting in the positive. Make it a matter of prayer as you consider something above and beyond your, rather, your other offerings. What would you be willing to do positively as a Christian to help in this particular area? Let us make it a matter of prayer and come prepared to present not before men, but for, before the Lord our good deeds that are made concrete by the offerings and sacrifices that we make before him. Well, this evening we're going to be talking about the extent of God's covenant. The extent of God's covenant. The significance of a principle is directly proportionate to the extent of its application. Now, that's a big, long fancy way of saying that uh, the broader something is in its implications, the more important it is. And that certainly, that principle would apply to the concept of God's covenants. Now, you can think of some parallels. For instance, in the area of God's creation, the first thing he created was light. This world could not exist apart from light. Light has always been here, even though We are in a period of darkness in terms of the rotation of day and night. We know that the light is there, and we would be quite frightened if there were no source of light. Light is a most permeating thing in the world in which we live. The same would be with principle would work with respect to the law of gravity. If there were just one place in this world in which the law of gravity were not working, what would happen? You might just stumble onto that place and then all of a sudden your organs would begin to do all sorts of strange things and, and you too. Perhaps, uh, you know, you remember those good old days back in the 50s where you had these spring shoes. I had a pair of those. They were lots of fun. The kids are missing a lot by not having shoes with springs on them. You, you ought to look and see if you can get somebody to resurrect those good old spring shoes. Well, if you hit an area where there were no, were no gravity, all of a sudden you could really do some, some springing. Well, the, the same is true with respect to the covenants. Why do we ask this question of the extent of God's covenant? Well, because it helps us to appreciate just how important the covenant is in God's thinking. If this is just a little incidental matter, then what are we doing spending all this time talking about the covenants? Well, as a matter of fact, you know that the word covenant, or if you don't know, the word covenant appears for the first time in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. Genesis 6, verse 18, and it has to do with the bond that God established with Noah and with his house. God was going to be a, bring a flood to destroy the whole earth, but Noah and his family were to be preserved. And God established his covenant at that point, and he set his bow in the sky as a permanent, eternal reminder that is eternal as far as our life and existence and world is concerned, to bind him to us and to remind us of his covenant commitment. Now, that Noah goes back a few years, you know. 
Then you move on to Abraham, and we can at least date Abraham about 4,000 years ago. Noah is a little more difficult to date. But as far as Abraham, 2,000 years ago, and we know that God cut a covenant with Abraham. God presented himself as a smoking torch and a, a flaming torch and a smoking oven, and he passed between the divided pieces, thus binding himself to life and death to this individual and to his seed, even to a thousand generations. Now that tells you something about the extent of the covenant. Then we come to Moses. And in the days of Moses at Sinai, God made a covenant. And Moses was commanded to sprinkle the people with the blood of the covenant, saying, Behold, the blood of the covenant that God has cut with you. And then when they gathered in the plains of Moab later on in the book of Deuteronomy, God said, God made that covenant. I made that covenant not just with your fathers, but with you who were not even born then. I made that covenant. And then we know that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David and with his sons that they would never cease to be a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. It would never fail that they would always be a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. And you can see perhaps a problem here. How are we going to deal with that problem of the possibility of an interruption of a Davidic descendant on the throne of David? For everlasting means not only forever, but unbroken. So we may have a little problem, and ultimately, the Lord willing, we'll deal with the Davidic covenant and that particular problem. And then we read tonight of the covenant with Jeremiah, or the covenant with Israel that God made with Jeremiah, with the house of Judah and with the house of Israel, to write his law in the hearts of his people. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 10, picks up those very phrases that are found in Jeremiah chapter 31, and says, God has made a covenant with us, Christians, in that new covenant circumstance. And you remember as the Lord's Supper was being consecrated by the Lord, he took the remnants of the Passover meal, that covenant meal of the Old Testament, and he broke the bread one more time, and he poured the cup of the Passover meal one more time, and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant which I have made with you. Now it is interesting that you see that in every one of those covenants, a covenant with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the new covenant that stretches into the present circumstance, that they're all characterized as eternal or everlasting covenants. You notice also that they span a good portion of human history, right? You start with Noah and you work through Abraham, Moses, and David, and the new covenant, and you see an overlaying of these covenants. It's not that one of these covenants succeeds and replaces the other, but each builds upon the other so that you have sort of a, a flower beginning to open up. You see in the covenant with Noah just a, a peek into the petals, with Abraham a little further opening, with Moses, a further spreading out of the beauty of that covenant, of David and finally the new covenant, and you can see the layers of the covenants that are eternally built. This must be a pretty significant thing. 
this idea of the covenant. If God would establish eternal covenants, one built upon the other, expanding and stretching beyond the generations, even until the point of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know the covenants will go until the second coming? Well, every time you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you're reminded, you shall do this until he comes. You shall celebrate the covenant until he comes. So we go from Noah until the consummation. Now what's left in history? What's left in terms of the extent of the covenant? Well, that little bitty section, and we really don't know how little it is, but it's a section there between Noah and Adam. What about that period? We know that covenant was used for the first time. The word covenant was used for the first time in Genesis 6, 18. Well after Adam, his creation, and the fall. But is it appropriate then to think in terms of the covenant stretching all the way back from Noah to creation? Or would it be more appropriate to reserve that concept of covenant to that particular point in history where the Bible begins to use the term covenant? Well, we need to explore a few scriptures a little more carefully here. We ultimately do want to let the Word of God determine whether or not this concept of God's binding himself and life and death to his people actually is something that overarches the whole of history from beginning to end or has a certain temporal beginning in the history of man. But before we look at those scripture verses, let's think of one interesting parallel And that parallel has to do with the concept of the messianic promises of the Old Testament. A parallel with the idea of the covenant is the idea of the Messiah, the anointed one that was to come. And when is the first time that the word Messiah is used in the Bible? Well, the first time the word Messiah or anointed one is used in the Bible is with reference to the priesthood In the book of Leviticus, the priests were to be anointed with the holy or consecrated oil, symbolizing that they were set apart to be God's servants. And in a sense, you can say that those early priests were messianic in that they were anointed with the Holy Spirit, anticipating the high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those Levitical priests and Aaron the high priest were pictures. You know, little videos of what God was going to do in reality sometime in the future when he sent the true Messiah. But shall we say the the first concept of a messianic promise is in Leviticus? Is that the first time you have a messianic promise? That's the first time you have the word Messiah, but where's the first time you have a messianic promise in the Bible? Well, the first time is Genesis 3.15. You can jot that reference down, and we'll be studying that in a few weeks, the Lord willing. Genesis 3.15, where the scripture says that God is going to raise up a seed of the woman that is to crush the head of the serpent. And that seed of the woman is going to bring peace by the defeat of Satan and his power. Is that a messianic promise? Of course It is a messianic promise. Even though the term Messiah may not be applied, messianic promise is present there. 
Now, very possibly the same is true with respect to the covenant idea. Even though the word covenant may not be found in Genesis chapter 1 or in Genesis chapter 2 or in Genesis chapter 3 describing the original relationships of God to man, it may nevertheless have been a covenantal relationship. There may have been, and I'm sure there were, particular reasons as to why the word covenant didn't occur until Genesis chapter 6. But nonetheless, the idea, the concept of covenant may have been present long before that. If you have in the original creational relationship of God to man a bond in blood or a bond of life and death that is sovereignly administered, then you have a covenant. Now we have an interesting parallel with respect to that again in that the substance of the reality is there even though the term covenant may not be there with respect to God's covenant with David. The covenant that God made with David is described in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you can read the whole of 2 Samuel chapter 7 and never one time run across the word covenant. Did God make a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7? Well, I think we're pretty sure that he did because scripture later says he does. Look at Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. Look at Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> this is a psalm of Ethan the Ezraite. He says in verse 1, I will sing of the love of the Lord forever. Verse 2, I will declare that your love stands firm forever. Now this term love or loving kindness in the Bible is wed. That's good. Love and wedding, those two go together like horse and carriage, love and marriage. So there is love and covenant. In the Old Testament, the covenant is bound with the idea of God's love. The very essence of covenant is a love relationship. As a matter of fact, marriage is called in the Bible a covenant because the essence of that relationship is a love relationship. So many times, or probably most of the time in the Old Testament, when you read about the love of God for his people, the references to the covenantal love, the covenant love, the love of a bond to life and death that God has established with his people. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 89. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one, I have sworn to David my servant. Now notice the Hebrew parallelism there. Hebrew parallelism is the way in which the Hebrew made poetry. How did he make poetry? By saying things slightly differently in two, things, two different ways. I have made a covenant. I have taken an oath. The very essence of covenant is an oath. It's a solemn, oath-bound commitment. Again, let's back up. And marvel at the fact that Almighty God has made a solemn, oath-bound commitment to you. God has lifted up his hand and sworn. But God has even done more than that. God has passed between the bloody pieces of covenant consecration. 
And God has said, may the Lord or God do more, the same to me and more also if I violate this covenant. The covenant and the oath are parallel. But with whom is this covenant made in Psalm 89? It's a covenant with David. Now again, you read 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the description of the oath that God took, but there's no reference to a covenant. So you see, you can have a covenant that's functioning even though the terminology may not be there. It's important to ask why the terminology isn't there. We can explore that question, but that does not necessarily deny the fact that a covenant is functioning. Now, that whole principle seems to apply to the early chapters of Genesis. What was the character of the bond that God established with Adam? Was it a bond of life and death? Indeed it was. For if Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. And if Adam restrained himself and was obedient to the Lord in that covenant relationship, then he would live. So life and death was that which was involved in the original covenantal relationship. Now indeed there wasn't the splitting of the animals and maybe that's part of the reason that covenant is not used in those early chapters of Genesis. That particular mode of making an oath had not been established in the world at the time of Adam and Eve. But nonetheless, the bond in blood, the bond of life and death was there between Adam and God. Now, there, in addition to that, there are a few references in the Bible that seem to expressly indicate that you do have a covenantal relationship between God and man at creation. Let's look at just a couple of these. Look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. The prophecy of Hosea, chapter 6, well, beginning at verse 4. Hosea was a prophet of the 8th century in the northern kingdom of Israel, 800 years before Christ. It was a time of great prosperity in the northern kingdom, but it was a time of great debauchery and sin. They were prospering and they said, we must be doing something right. As the song says, I must have done something right or all of these things wouldn't be going well in my life, which is very bad theology. (laughs) Very bad theology. But that's what they were thinking. And Hosea had the, the awesome task of telling them, the judgment of God is coming on you, even though everything looks like it's going fine. Look at Hosea 6 verses 4 and following. What can I do with you, Ephraim? That's the northern kingdom. What can I do with you, Judah? That's the southern kingdom. Your love, your love, that is your covenant fidelity. Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. You come to me and, and you make all this ruckus in church on Sunday, and then you go out and you live the way you want to live. Your heart is not at your right hand. You are not controlling the issues of life as they flow out of your heart. Therefore, he says, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flash like lightning upon you, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What is all this worship if you don't go out and express it 
in terms of the mutual care and concern for one another. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now look at verse 7. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. There it is. The they would be Israel. And he's saying Israel has broken the covenant in the same way that Adam broke the covenant. Now, if you've got a Bible with footnotes in it, you might say, oh, wait a minute, let's slow down here a little bit. There might be another way to understand that phrase. And it is true. You could read that at Adam, but the only way that you can do that is to change the jots and the tittles of the Bible. And Jesus said, not a jot or a tittle would pass away. There is no evidence in the text of itself. There is, there would be, have to be a little change of the letter that says, like Adam, instead of at Adam, to have the reading, Adam, there, to refer to a person rather than a place. And the support seems to be much stronger for the idea that here the text actually does read, like Adam. Now there's one other possible way of interpreting this text. What is it? Instead of saying like Adam, you could say like man. For the word Adam can be either the particular first man, Adam, or it can be mankind. And that's a possible reading and a possible interpretation there. But let me ask you the question. What difference ultimately does it make? Where is it that all mankind is brought into a covenant relationship with God if it is not at creation? Either by Adam the first man or by all mankind, a covenant with God has been broken. And that covenant is the covenant that God established at creation. Let's look at one other verse in Jeremiah chapter 33 to notice the extent of this covenant stretching all the way back to creation. Jeremiah 33, verses 19 and following. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David my servant and my covenant with the Levites who are priests ministering before me can be broken and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. Notice the reference. A reference to a covenant with day and a covenant with night. Where is any idea of a covenant with day and a covenant with night? Well, it could, could, could go back to the covenant with Noah in Genesis 8:22, which talks about day and night and summer and winter shall not cease so long as the earth remains. That would be a part of the covenant that God made with Noah. But even more likely, it goes back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 14 and following, when it talks about the sun that God appointed to rule the day, and the moon that God appointed 
to rule the night. The fixed orders of creation were bound by God as a loving relationship with this world when he created the world. Now, if you don't want to call that original creational relationship of God with man a covenant, that's all right. That's fine. But it does seem that all the elements are there. That from the creation of the world until the consummation of the world, God has worked in covenant. Now, what are the implications? Well, the implications, practically speaking, are first of all, you go out there and down, commute down to Washington and you see all kinds of people from all different parts of the world speaking all different languages and you're impressed with the variety of humanity. Did you know that every single one of those people is in covenant with God? Even if they don't know it, they are in a life and death relationship with God. And if they respond properly, then they will have life. And if they respond improperly, they will have death. There is not a man that has ever lived on the face of the earth that has not been bound in covenant relationship with God. For creation affected that kind of bond. You know what else? Every one of those men walking along the street, even though they may have never heard the word covenant, being bound in covenant with God, also know that they are in covenant with God and that they have broken that covenant relationship. Even though they don't know the term, they know that they have broken the covenantal relationship. I remember one relationship that I had with a man working in a parts department of a, of a packing company. We got into a discussion about the law of God and this man told me that he was, had never sinned in all his life. 65 years of age, and he had never sinned one time. I said, are you sure of that? You've never sinned once? No, I've never sinned one time. And I just recounted to him some of the laws of God. You know, if you have hatred in your heart, you've already committed murder. If you have adultery in your heart, then you've already committed adultery. He said, no, I've never sinned. He came back the next day and he said, I told my wife what you said about my being a sinner and all that. She said, you didn't know the half of it. <laughs> so he said, you call them sins, I'll call them mistakes. But he knew. He knew. His wife knew. <laughs> and he knew as well. He was a covenant violator. Now look, when you go out to witness for Jesus Christ, go not as a bold, brave, self-confident person, but go with the confidence of God's covenants, that every person that you talk to is in a bond with God and that he knows he's broken that bond. And the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The more self-confidence they may radiate from themselves, the more conscious they are in their inner hearts that they have broken the law of God. There is such a thing as an atheistic fish who breaks the, the surface of the water, shakes all the water off himself and says, I don't believe in the ocean. And he goes right back down again and catches his breath and a little more oxygen and then out again and says, I don't believe in the ocean and back down again. That's the atheistic fish. 
Now, there are a lot of people that are atheistic with respect to their relationship with God and God's covenant. But you be confident of the fact. You just go and in a loving, gentle way tell them, oh yes, there is a God, whether you believe it or not. He made you in his own likeness and image. You are accountable to him. You have broken his law. And though you may deny it outwardly, your inner conscience tells you that that is the truth. And let me tell you about the wondrous way that a new covenant has been established for covenant breakers in which God will write his law into your heart. So what is the significance of the extent of the covenant? It has great significance because it binds all human beings in that one circumstance of a need of a restoration of true and right covenant relationship. And you can go with the whole structures of the creation that include the foundational elements of sun, moon, and stars and in that context testify concerning God's covenant and men's need of that covenant. Let us pray and let us stand as we close with the benediction. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that before the foundation of the world you set your love on us. And we come now and ask that you will give to us ever greater confidence in the permanency of your love in Jesus Christ. Make us confident witnesses of the new covenant, not because of anything that is in ourselves, but because of the wonders of the world that you have made and the way in which you have bound yourself to us. Now may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit abide upon you all both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.